Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. Uh, I am uh, a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, though I do not speak officially for the college in anything I say or do. And I'm here with my colleagues, uh, Todd Pruitt, pastor of a PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I do speak officially for Carl Truman. Todd is my spokesman. Uh, he, it is. And Amy Bird. Yep. And Amy Bird, uh, who speaks for... Anybody she chooses to. Speaks for the trees. Speaks for the trees and to the trees, I believe. So, and uh, as we were, we were just about to go live with our recording today, and an email, and I'm telling you the truth here, an email arrived in my inbox from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Dear Dr. Truman, we are pleased to announce that Dr. Jonathan Master of Cairn University will assume responsibilities as the next president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary on July 1st, 2020. And it just so happens that we have the president-elect as our guest today. So, President Master, if I... (laughs) Oh, President Master. Uh, Welcome to the show. No, not yet. Not yet. But but <laughs> I, I do want you to know, I set aside the first interview for the mortification. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, now, are, are we going to need to treat you in a way that's different from how we've typically treated you? Well, I would hope so. Okay. Well. Uh, I don't know if I have an official ruling on that yet, since I don't assume the position until July. But okay. um, yeah, maybe we can get started with that new okay. treatment now. We're going to try. We're going to try to do that. And, and let me also add that Jonathan Master is also the host of a wonderful theological podcast mm-hmm. um, called A Place for Truth. Yeah, the site is Place for Truth, yes. and, the, and the actual podcast is called Theology yeah. on the Go. It's really, really good. And if you do not have Theology on the Go as a part of your podcast lineup, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the show, John, and uh, personally a great delight to congratulate you on your appointment. Mm-hmm. I've known about it, of course, for, uh, for a couple of months. We've talked about it, but it's, it's great that it's now out in the open. And it's great to see Greenville continuing its tradition of faithful leadership and uh, to recommend it as a seminary worth considering mm-hmm. if you're looking for a good, sound, biblical education with a view to a pastoral call. So congratulations on that. Thank job. you. Thank you very much. We are not actually going to interview you on GPTS today, though. We, we want to speak to you about the Quaker Town theological conference that's coming up this fall. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the lineup and uh, what the theme is going to be. And first of all, where the Quakertown conference happens. It happens in Quakertown, actually. (laughs) Well, but a lot of people may have no idea what we're talking about when we say Quakertown. (laughs) Right, right, right. So Quakertown is about, I would guess, about an hour north of Philadelphia. It's um, not exactly a suburb of Philadelphia, but it's sort of between Philadelphia and the Lehigh Valley, Allentown area. So the Quakertown Conference has a long history. It's It was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first conferences that the Alliance sponsored 
besides the PCRT mm-hmm. conference, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. So they've been doing this for a long time. They have an excellent lineup of speakers every year. This year's conference is November 8th and 9th. It's the evening of November 8th, Friday night, and then pretty much all day Saturday, the 9th. And uh, the topic is a perennially relevant topic. It's it's called Worship the Chief End of Man. Of course, a reference to the... Um, first question of the Westminster Catechism. And so all of the uh, plenary speakers and workshop speakers are addressing the topic of worship in some form or fashion. Now, the, uh, the, the Quaker Town Conference, obviously, is they have a tradition of advocating for and teaching and promoting uh, Reformed theology. And so, Jonathan, I wonder if you could just kind of give us an overview. How is the subject this year uh, reflective of that commitment of of the teaching and, and promotion of the Reformed doctrines connected to worship? I think the biggest thing that you'd notice if you looked at the lineup of speakers and the lineup of topics is that all of them assume that worship is framed by the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I don't know the specific content of what everyone's address is going to be, of course, but you can see from the titles, they have things like, what is divine worship? Whom do we worship? And worship according to the Word. And so there's, a, there's an assumption that underlies, I think, each of those topics, which is, this is not something that we are making up or that we are in any way uh, empowered to make up on our own. In fact, It's something that's a response to who God is as he's revealed himself to us in his word and what he has said about how we're supposed to approach him. So that in and of itself, I mean, in a sense, encapsulates the reformed doctrine of worship, that this is according to the word, it's driven by the word and governed by what we learn in the word about who God is. Jonathan, one of the things that you'll hear oftentimes growing up in broader evangelicalism um, and, and in very conservative, broader evangelicalism is that, well, we really don't have anything from the Bible that really tells us how to worship. What matters in the Bible is as long as our, our hearts are really in the right place. And I grew up um, hearing that. Um, I was taught that. And then as a young youth pastor, I myself taught that, having just assumed that that whatever is in the Old Testament about worship has passed away. It's no longer really relevant for the church. And the New Testament doesn't say a word, you know, I've always was told about how we are to worship. How do you respond to that line of thinking? You know, I I think I understand what drives that because it's certainly the case when you get to the New Testament and and you think about even the criticisms that Jesus has, the the sharp criticisms that Jesus has for the Pharisees and other uh, Jewish leaders of his day. It's certainly the case that groups of people in the scriptures can go through the motions of worship and yet their heart is distant from the Lord. And so I I think I understand a little bit of what the perspective you described is responding Mm -hmm. to. It's certainly possible to engage in what looks to be outward worship and yet actually to have no living, vibrant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it's also clear, I think, through the scriptures, and this really starts in the earliest chapters, we see this starting in Genesis chapter four, that God cares a great deal about how we approach him in worship. You think about Genesis four, and there are some mysteries there, but 
Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable to the Lord. You could say that he just sort of went with the flow and did what he wanted to do. And his worship was driven by his own desires and his own understanding. And it was, it was wrong. And, and Abel's, of course, was acceptable to the Lord. Or you think about uh, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. It's a very striking text because that's the first day of tabernacle worship. The tabernacle was erected. It was a, a matter of, of much rejoicing in Israel. And the first day, day one, Nadab and Abihu go in and they offer what's called strange fire before the Lord. And they're struck down immediately. So actually, I think the pattern of scripture is that God cares a great deal about how he's approached in worship and he has delineated how it is that he's supposed to be approached in worship. And we have to be very careful that our worship is regulated by God's word and God's word alone. Now, of course, you can't ha- go through the motions of worship and not have your heart be united to the Lord and expect that to be acceptable to God either. Right. But there is no question that that God cares about how he's worshiped. And I, and I do think that continues actually into the New Testament. Uh, there are instructions that are given to us in the New Testament about how we're supposed to approach God, what the elements of worship are supposed to be. Not everything is is laid out with specificity. Certainly there are there are things that are, are flexible in, 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 from culture to culture and time to time, but, but the elements of worship are given to us in God's word and we have to be careful to obey those instructions. Yeah. What would you say to someone who says, well, but you're free to do anything in worship so long as it's not specifically forbidden? I would say that, again, the pattern of Scripture points us in exactly the opposite direction. The pattern of Scripture points us uh, in the direction of saying that God has told us how we are to approach him. And that, in fact, anything that goes beyond that is is sin. I mean, Nadab and Abihu's strange fire, um, as far as I can tell, is not breaking a specific commandment that's given. In other words, you're not going to go back in the book of Exodus and and have the Lord say, thou shalt not offer strange fire before me. But he does tell them what to do. And whatever it is that they did, it was beyond that or in some way contravened that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's the picture that we get of approaching God in worship. And you know it's it's serious business. I think I think one of the reasons why we have such a casual attitude towards public worship is because we have a casual attitude toward God and we think mm-hmm. that he must be approachable on our terms. We wouldn't right. assume that in almost any other hierarchical relationship, but for some reason we assume it when it comes to our creator, the God of the universe. And we don't even oftentimes assume it when we think about just a close friend. Absolutely <laughs> not. We'll, if someone invites me out or over to their house, I might say, uh, depending on the occasion, okay, what, what am I supposed to bring? What am I right. supposed to wear? When am I supposed to arrive? Mm-hmm. You know, those are things that you'd ask even in close friendships because we know that those occasions demand those uh, kinds of instruction. Yeah, yeah. Can I infer from what you're saying, Jonathan, that the point of worship is not to make me feel good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's I mean you that should hinting in that when direction. we read the Bible, that should go w- without saying. I mean, we could return to some of the same texts again in Genesis chapter four. The problem is not that Cain 
didn't feel good either before his offering or, or even after it or while offering it, but rather that what he did displeased the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the same could be said of any of these examples of public worship that we have. And even in the New Testament, if you think about some of the instructions we get, for instance, in First Corinthians, where Paul gives instruction mixed with rebuke on the issue of the Lord's Supper and what he tells them, in fact, is that the very things they are doing, which they are doing to satisfy their own desires, you know, they're getting drunk at communion. Well, that might have been really fun for them, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't uh, at all remotely approximating what uh, the Lord's table was was meant to be about. One of the things I wrestle with is, uh, on the one hand, there are the elements of worship. On the other hand, there are also aesthetics that it's possible to have the all of the elements of worship faithfully followed, but the music to be dreadful, the singing to be dull and uninspired. How, how do you balance the elements of worship with the need for good music, for example, uh, coherent prayers, those kind of things? Mm-hmm. I think that in each case, anyone who has any responsibility for in any capacity, leading or facilitating public worship ought to bring their best before the Lord and ought to bring their best even in service of the Lord's people when they're gathered together on the Lord's day. And so I think that goes all the way down to the music. Uh, It certainly has bearing on whoever would be leading a congregation in prayer I mean, there is a sense in which that kind of effort and preparation and this word can get used in different ways, but that kind of excellence is is demanded by the occasion. And again, to return to Todd's point earlier, we we know this intuitively in almost every other relationship. We know that uh, we we need to bring our best in certain situations. We need to be prepared in other situations, depending on the occasion. And and I think public worship, the worship of God with God's people, is the occasion on which we should, in a sense, apply all of our intellectual and other faculties to the task at hand. One thing that I encounter more often than I would expect, especially in reformed circles, is just um, a cavalier view toward uh, the importance of corporate worship. Um, Yes, we're to live all of our lives with this chief end in mind of glorifying God, but there's something specifically sacred happening after this call to worship corporately. um, Maybe you could spend some time just talking about the importance of corporate worship versus, you know, after the benediction and being sent out into the world, as opposed to those who say, well, you know, I missed corporate worship today, but I was able to, you know, worship the Lord while I was, you know, spending a few moments outside or, or whatever. And, um, and also, you know, what specifically is happening? What, what change is happening after that call to worship? I think there are at least two issues in play there. I mean, one is the example that you gave where someone says, well, I, I skipped corporate worship, but I was whatever out, mm-hmm. out, out you know, in the fishing in the, and glorifying yeah, God. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That I think is a serious problem mm-hmm. because then, then in my estimation, what you're talking about is actually 
uh, contravening the commands that we have in, in scripture. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing that, it, it goes back to our earlier discussion. Who, who's in charge here? Who sets the agenda? What's this all about? Mm-hmm. Is it about uh, me and my agenda and, and what makes me feel a certain way? No, it's not. It's about God and what he's, he's said. So I think that's one category, but you're, you're right that the, you, uh, there are lots of things that we can do in our lives, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices before the Lord that in that sense are, are a kind of act of worship. But, but I, I do think what you find in the New Testament, certainly in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, is that public worship has a, a special significance to it. I, I was just reflecting on this in the context of Hebrews 12 and then Hebrews 13. And it, and it is mm-hmm. interesting the way in which the writer to Hebrews kind of concludes, brings together these threads at the end, for instance, of Hebrews 12, after talking about the heavenly city mm-hmm. that we approach and, and contrasting it with Mount Sinai, he says, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, what he's talking about there is not simply our individual acts of uh, service to Christ, but our approach with others in worship. And, and he strikes that note again of worship public worship in Hebrews 13. So I do think there is something particular, uh, special, set apart, ordained by God about the public worship of God's people. It's always a response to God and his word. And I think that that ties in with the, the last point you made about when we gather together and hear that call to worship. Well, that is that is exactly what it says it is. That is God from his word calling his people to worship him and, and every element of our services of worship, I think should be ordered around what God is calling us to do or what God is saying about us or to us. So yeah, I would put those in different categories. Mm-hmm. And, and then I would also say, again, if someone's going to not only conflate those categories, but worse than that, use that conflating of categories to ignore public worship. Mm-hmm. Well then, you know, that's, that's gone seriously off the rails of what the scriptures teach us. So you're teaching a workshop at this conference, right? Yes, I'm teaching a workshop on Saturday afternoon on worship and assurance. Ooh, tell us a little bit about that. That sounds interesting. Well, I I want to really do two things in the in the workshop. Uh, I I think there will be time for Q and A Q&A and discussion at the end. So I don't know exactly what direction it'll go in, but but what I want to lay out is first of all the issues related to the assurance of faith in our lives. It's, it's a topic that's often ignored today because uh, we, again, have a, have a very cavalier attitude toward God and, and his word. And so there are a lot of people who have what I think the Puritans would call a false assurance. Um, but after discussing some of those things, I, what I want to really do is spend some time uh, talking about the ways in which public worship, and I'm really using the word worship in the, in the topic title to talk about public worship, how public worship is actually in certain ways designed to cause us to grow in our assurance. It's interesting in the um, Westminster Confession, in the chapter on assurance, it talks about how we can have assurance and, and it says that this can be not through extraordinary revelation, but in the right use of ordinary means. And that, 
that phrase ordinary means of course is used elsewhere in the standards to refer to prayer and and the sacraments Mm -hmm. and and so what i hope to do is to show how these ordinary means preaching prayer the sacraments are used by god and are intended uh, by god to cause us to grow in our assurance of our relationship with christ that's good and we we were talking earlier carl and amy and i were talking earlier just about um as as we were talking about different things that were of central concern to to the reformers of course one of those issues was was worship oftentimes reformed theology is is reduced down to you know quote unquote you know the five points forgetting that of great concern particularly to to the presbyterians was a, a reformation of worship not that that was unimportant to to luther i mean luther basically got himself in a great deal of trouble for doing away with the mass as it was known prior to that but but the reformation of worship was huge and um i know in my own context growing up i heard very very little instruction on worship and i think it was a a lot of it was due to the fact again that this wrong assumption that outside of some old testament rules the bible just doesn't say a whole lot about it the other thing i think that is common in terms of misunderstanding is that worship is what we do before the preacher gets up to preach um almost as if well we worship and then we hear preaching how would you answer that dichotomy or speak to that to help people understand that that is not a healthy division for us to make no, it's a great question. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I vacillate back and forth uh, between trying to be the language police every time someone <laughs> right. says, okay, now that we finished worship, let's, you know, I, I'm with you though. I mean, it's it's not a biblical way of, of speaking or of understanding the worship of God. So, mm-hmm. so you're right. What people often mean when they use the term worship is the singing that right. we do. Right. And that's it. But you're right as well that that's such a, great distance removed from what we see in the reformers calvin in particular has some striking statements about the significance of worship even really going so far as to talking about the reformation and protestantism as primarily about the restoration of true worship Mm -hmm. and so it's a very different picture that you get when you go back to the uh, early reformers. And yeah, the language thing, I, I think it's so pernicious. I, I hear it so often. And I think what's really troubling about it is in just limiting the term worship to music, you're sort of automatically filtering out such a large percentage of what the the scriptures teach when they talk about the worship of god Mm -hmm. because one of the things i I hope people will understand as uh the preacher stands before and proclaims the word of god is that he's he's not there in the public worship service There, there are other times where it's wonderful to have a great lecture but that's not what happens in preaching preaching is is something that we 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 pray that that our people are receiving with joy that there is something going on in their in their heart and so and again, in, in keeping with that, the preacher is not just simply relaying facts, but he's pleading, he's lifting up and magnifying uh, God and who he is and how he's revealed himself in his word. And so I, I fear oftentimes that in some pulpits that the pastor might tend to treat the sermon more as a lecture. Here's where I'm relaying theological facts, although that ought to be a part of preaching, that in and of itself isn't, that there's a uh, 
an identifiable um, aspect of worship, of exaltation, as we preach and as we receive the preaching, uh, that, that the hearers are to be exulting in the Lord as they receive his word joyfully. You know, it's a great point. Uh, if we have this truncated view of worship, we're going to have a lower view of preaching. And um, I think I think there's no question that you see that. And apart from even the elements that you described in preaching, I think it's striking. You know, to return to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is called a word of exhortation. That's mm-hmm. typically a, a phrase that's used of, of preaching. Mm-hmm. And what's so striking in, in that book, if you read it as a kind of sermon, is how often the the preacher, the one writing it, talks about the fact that he's speaking and he's speaking and Christ is speaking through him. And of, of course, it's that's an inspired text. And so there is a mm-hmm. difference between our preaching today and and that particular sermon. But but I agree with you, the kind of authority and and the kind of weight of the preached word is completely lost if you simply think in terms of we have this time of singing and then a talk Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and this connects to other ways that people think interestingly about the preached word because i've had people tell me before well you know they've been listening to some sermons online right and so they don't see the need you know they had something else they wanted to do sunday morning and so they've already heard a sermon basically in their mind and there's there's no connection then between um the covenant community and, and actual bodily presence and uh, being a part of that covenant community and then and receiving the word together that way. and um, They wouldn't think about that that way about the music, but they do about the preaching. Right. And, and then you think that too, like if we're talking about Hebrews, you keep hearing, let us, mm-hmm. let us, mm-hmm. let us. Um, and so he's addressing the whole church. And then I've also heard, oh, you know, got a bunch of preaching from the, the funeral that I was at yesterday. So I don't really feel like I need to go to church today. We're going to go do something else. And I just think that sometimes people fundamentally understand sports better than they do a worship service because, you know, I would never say, oh, well, my daughter got a bunch of pitches thrown to her yesterday. So in practice, I don't see any need for her to show up for the game. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. we'll show up I mean, late to all the game. of that is related yeah. to the public worship question, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. if if what you think uh, Sunday morning is, is just we get together and sing and we hear a talk, then it's a pretty small step from there to say, well, I can hear a talk driving to the mountains, mm-hmm. you know, on my on my phone. And yeah, I miss the singing, but, you know, that that's OK. So so the, the ripple effect in the Christian life from a sort of truncated view of, of public worship is, is massive. Mm-hmm. It has a massive impact on, on all these areas of our Christian life. Yeah. So um, as we're, we're closing up, Jonathan, could you tell us who else will be speaking for the Quakertown conference? I can. Uh, so just let me preface this by saying, if anyone wants more information, you can get it at AllianceNet.org. Mm-hmm. There should be a banner at the top with this worship, the chief end of man, title and and you can click on that and find out more but anyway the plenary speakers are Ian Duguid, Jason Holopoulos and Harry Reeder and the workshop speakers are again Jason Holopoulos myself and Brian Mayer and that's it's at Grace Bible Fellowship Church in Quakertown Pennsylvania well thanks for spending some time today to talk to us about worship and the chief end of man and telling us a little bit about this Quakertown conference Jonathan 
anytime. It's great to talk with you guys. Yeah, really good talking with you again. And congratulations again on your new appointment for next year. We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm praying that the Lord will continue to enable me to be faithful this year, but we are excited about, uh, about the move next summer. Great. Well, thanks to our listeners today. Um, we're excited. If you go over to our website at mortificationofspin.org, we're going to be giving away a few free registrations to the Quaker Town Conference. So make sure to go over there, especially if you're in the Pennsylvania area. It's November 8th and 9th, and you may get a chance to have a free registration. So we encourage you to do that. And also that we're a listener-supported podcast, so we also have a donate button on our website if you feel inclined to do that and thanks for listening and we look forward to talking to you next week Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I think that people understand that they have a need for these practical talks, and so they're not so interested in God, more interested in things that are going to be helpful in living my life right now in the present and not really understanding the relevance of an in-depth study of God. It's the tyranny of the urgent. That interview is next time. Join us then. Okay, my favorite. Oh, no. No. It's like torture. It's musical cancer. It gets into you and you just can't get rid of it. Yes. Oh. The key change. I like how he holds the mic. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a subtlety to his voice I appreciate. Bring it up. So what's our topic going to be? Are we going to answer listener questions this time, or are we going to talk? <laughs> oh, I was just going to play this. Um, Amy wants to record. Okay. Oh,